I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. Founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everyone start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the greatest way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. I have an incredibly exciting announcement to make. I am taking this very podcast, Conversations of Inspiration, on the road, with six live recordings taking place across the UK. Each episode will take place in a very special venue with a highly inspirational guest, including a speech from me and a chance to ask questions too. The evening will include wonderful entertainment, magical Holly & Co details, a fantastic opportunity to shop small business, drink a delicious tipple or two, mingle with like-minded people, make new friends, and I will ensure you will be thoroughly and utterly inspired. I believe that one conversation has the ability to change the course of your life forever, and I want it to be mine. So don't delay. Get your ticket to Conversations of Inspiration, the podcast live in partnership with NatWest. We'll only be recording six live episodes this year, so make sure you don't miss out. Head to holly.co to get your ticket today. This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm speaking to the queen of brand, Rita Clifton CBE, also known as the brand guru, the doyen of branding and the brand leading the brands. It's safe to say Rita is the ultimate expert and I knew I had to interview her for this podcast to help all small businesses in this aspect of their company. Rita graduated from Cambridge and started her career in advertising, becoming vice chairman of Saatchi and Saatchi, then London CEO and chairman for over 15 years at the global brand consultancy Interbrand. And in 2013, she co-founded Brandcap, which has performed amongst the 1% of the most successful business startups in the UK. She has worked on the most famous campaigns, including the iconic British Airways face advert, and actually helped to create the concept that brand is a valuable asset in business. In fact, it can be the most valuable asset. I had the pleasure of speaking to Rita in her London home, where I definitely developed a bit of a girl crush. We spoke about the journey working in the golden time of advertising in the 80s, her experience of always being the only female board member, and what it takes to build a powerful brand that spans a decade. Hi, Rita. What an honour it is to be here with you in your own home, stunning home, of course, and with the queen of branding. We met in an event last year and I knew from that moment I had a complete girl crush. 
You were so funny, brilliantly clever, and I knew I had to ask you onto this podcast and share your story with this small business community. So thank you for making me tea in your own home, Rita. <laughs> it's a good thing that this isn't being videoed because people would see how much I'm blushing, I think, at the moment. <laughs> and a couple of things I'd say. Number one is the girl crush was completely mutual. You were just so funny and dynamic, and I just oh, thought we've got to, we have to connect it some other time. And the second thing is, you say this is my home. Frankly, it doesn't feel like it. You know, my daughter is installed in here with a friend. I feel like I drop in here part time. But that is the way of the modern family. (laughs) I think we probably should absolutely thank her. But anyway, it's lovely to talk to you and really looking forward to to talking to you and sharing whatever might be helpful. So you've had this most phenomenal career being at the heart of the advertising industry in the 80s, becoming the chair of Saatchi and Saatchi, the most famous agency in the world, then joining Interbrand, where you pioneered the way companies now view brand, and now being in many boardrooms as a portfolio chairman, consulting for top retail brands, you pretty much have a bird's eye view on retail and this infinite knowledge on brand. So I seriously can't wait to get stuck in. It's going to be a special podcast because I'm a complete brand nut. So first, I'd love to start with your story. You were brought up in Buckinghamshire where your parents ran a local shop. Is this where you fell in love with retail? Do you know, I think it's difficult not to fall in love with retail. I mean, it's an addictive thing. You know, you set something up, you put some products out people come in and buy them you know pretty quickly whether or not something's going to work or not and I have to say that you know the memory of me in you know a very long overall at about the age of seven trying to serve people in the shop this sort of almost outside in view of me as a little girl thinking this is amazing and also my parents shop it was a toy shop and a record shop. Now, these were two very important things. Toys were great at certain parts of my life, and then records were amazing. Actually, just in case a few people of a certain age or under a certain age are listening, records are those things that are now kind of Spotify and things like that. They were like these vinyl things. But when I was a teenager, boys used to come in and listen to records. So I have to say, I met one or two of my boyfriends doing that. So a couple of things, I used to add up the till roll, you know, at the end of the day, the end of the week, because I loved doing that for my my mum and my dad. And that feeling of, we've sold these things. People have come in, we've served them, they bought them, they've been happy and everything else. And the speed at which retail then anyway physical retail worked and the reward was great so yes it was a great grounding how things have changed but my parents had one little local shop and of course multiples then multiplied and that struggle that struggle for difference that struggle to keep your business going really also struck me as a hugely important lesson And so from there, what happened? You had this love of retail. Tell me about how that retail then took you into this phenomenal world of advertising. What was that journey? Well, it's interesting. Um, Sadly, my father died when I was only 12 and my mother tried to keep the shop going didn't work at all but I carried on working we had new owners I carried on working in the shop 
uh, too. And actually, that job kept me going through university because I had to, I had a maximum grant. Wasn't I lucky in those days? Um, I paid for myself. Um, if I wasn't working in that shop, I was working in another shop. And that understanding of customers was really what inspired me to go into something that was related to customers at a later date. Now, actually in those days, and I'm talking like quite a long days ago there, <laughs> when you left university, retail wasn't necessarily the kind of thing that you went into. Well, you read classics at Cambridge. I did read classics at Cambridge. Thank you for exposing <laughs> me to the world on that front. I can still bore people at parties, you know, with, uh, with being a classicist and I'm finickety about grammar and where the apostrophes go. That's what classics has done for me. But I have to say, it didn't really equip you for anything very much in you know, the broader world. But retail really got me to think, A, this is great, this understanding customers, and how to serve them and so on, what they wanted, what they were doing, the psychology of marketing and selling and so on, even on a tiny scale, that was really interesting. But it was the numbers and types of people I would meet that actually really shaped what I was then able to do in my career. And I say that because just understanding how the world works, you know, people having to earn money, people not having enough money, meeting a whole range of people is a fundamentally important thing for whatever you do in your working life. And when I was wanting, when I was about to graduate from university, I wanted a job that, frankly, paid me a decent amount of money and actually had something to do with the media. Now, what I found myself doing when I went into advertising was actually working on retail businesses, and that was the best combination. And I have to say that the advertising business was also a really, really good platform, again, for understanding people, working with people, getting the best out of people. But I've always had one foot in the advertising business and the branding consultancy business too, one foot in retail, and also, I hope we'll come back to this, one foot in the environment and sustainability camp. That's been my three-legged stool in my career. And... You ended up becoming the Vice Chairman and Strategy Director at Saatchi & Saatchi. This must have been a bit of a journey. Did you rise quickly through this? or? Yeah. Well, fairly quickly, but I think there are a couple of interesting things that, that happened. I mean, number one, I think that very few people who graduated from my college at Cambridge really went into things like marketing and communication advertising. I think it was all felt to be a little bit too vulgar. And also my academic teachers, if you like, were a bit surprised, I think, that I did quite well. I think they thought I was destined, I don't know, to go and do something arty or something rock and roll. I don't know. But anyway, I got a great letter from my director of studies when I was awarded a CBE who said... I watched your career with great interest and I have to say some surprise, which I thought was just, <laughs> was great. But honestly, I didn't want to do any more exams. So I thought advertising was quite glamorous. I could, you know, do stuff that related to retail and things like that. But what was interesting is a developing new role and department that was in the advertising business called strategic planning. And that department was the one that really understood customer insight, customer behavior, how you connected with people, you know, how you really marketed them and really made sure that they wanted your brand versus somebody else's. And understanding that psychology was fascinating to me because, frankly, I'm fundamentally nosy. 
I think this is a characteristic <laughs> that has really you know, propelled you. my career. And what's more, I think it keeps you alive, you know, really being nosy about what's happening in the world, about people, who they are, what they're doing, what they're going to do, what they're going to buy, all those things. So in the strategic planning department, it was endless opportunities of being nosy. I mean, looking at data, looking at trends, looking at people. Once I got into that department, I really started to progress because I'd found something I was truly good at. And that, I think, is key that I would share you know, with any young people I speak to, is that you need to get to a business that you think that's interesting and just get started and work your butt off. I certainly worked very hard because I wanted to get on, I wanted to earn money, I wanted to progress and things like that. I then ended up being strategy director, vice chairman and so on, working on some of the most interesting businesses at the stage where Britain was... Mm. developing a confidence on the global stage. I mean, it was a very exciting time to be in business. It was an exciting time to be alive. It was an exciting time to work for Saatchi and Saatchi because one of the key lessons I learned there was you have to have a propelling purpose, vision. I don't much care what people call it, but their particular vision was about nothing is impossible. They actually delivered that. Nothing was impossible. We're going to build the biggest advertising agency in the world that suddenly became possible. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to work with some of the biggest organisations on the planet. That also became possible. We're going to get into, you know, politics and help people become leaders, whether you agreed with the leaders that they helped to get up there or not, but that's what they did. The, the energy, the drive and everything else, I found it absolutely inspiring. And I think that sense of purpose, of drive is a really crucial thing, whether you're in a big business, a small business, whether you're in retail, advertising, marketing, or whatever, but you've got to have a strong sense of drive. Something that I really learned from that stage, that stage of my career, that then I was very helpful in becoming chief executive and then chairman later. Gosh, what a story. It's funny. I started out my career at Publicis Advertising Agency. I was 17 years old and it was in the early 90s. And I do remember it very vividly. It had just come out of this heyday of the 80s and I knew people that worked at Saatchi's and we worked so hard six days a week we would somehow or I would be part of drinking a bottle of wine at least every lunchtime <gasps> then I would be coming back to work and working all afternoon as well and and I think back to it now and I just think it was this passion and drive and energy that people were just excited all the time. It felt like an evening out at lunchtime, but then you went back and you did six, seven hours more work. Can you tell me what it was like being quite a senior woman in that sort of, I can imagine, was it a bit mad many type world? Hmm. Well, a couple of things I might mention, one of which is obviously we had some common experiences on the advertising business. The only thing that wasn't in common is you might have gone back to the office after you had a long lunch well, and a I, bottle I of wine and worked. I have to say, yeah. on too many occasions, I went back and went to sleep. I mean, I could not take my drink. I was a total amateur on that one. But anyway, <laughs> that is very, I, very I different. I thought you were going to say what else happened, which was um, my bosses would say do you think we should go back to the office? God. And it was like 3.30 in the afternoon. And, and I, at the oh. age of 18, went, well, if you say we're not going back. It was a different era, wasn't it? I couldn't believe that someone else would be paying for my lunch 
and drinks. I mean, that was a real revelation. Anyway, things are very, very different now. The metabolism of business in general, it used to take three or four days to get a letter out, you know. And yes. These these things are a bit different. But I think what was interesting is when I was a graduate trainee, you know, in the medieval uh, period, I remember it being remarked on that my year of graduate intake was 50-50 men and women. And that was felt to be something really quite different and quite strange. So my sister, who's seven years older than me, in many ways, we're in slightly different generations. I think Mm. I was probably at the front end of a new generation whereby you expected equality. You expected that, you know, you could take out a mortgage and do any of the things Mm -hmm. that guys could. Now, obviously, that's been intensified and developed over the years. But I think that certainly in a previous generation, there was sort of the expectation that, you know, if you're a woman and went into business, well, that's okay. But frankly, if you wanted to get, you know, really high up, you wouldn't have children. Or otherwise, you would work part-time and maybe go back. You know, it was just a different time. So I count myself as being very lucky. And I have to say, I haven't personally experienced very much sexism, bias, and so on. Certainly not to my face, anyway. I'm sure that people were saying in the background, you know, know, was I a bit loud or a bit pushy? I don't know. However, I just felt able to ignore it. The thing, obviously, you couldn't ignore, and I actually found a sense of humour quite important sometimes, when people were sort of making funny remarks about what you were wearing or, you know, getting up the duff as I eventually, you know, did do things like that. I found humour quite an effective weapon just to say to people, could you just go and screw yourself? Whatever you might have said, uh, then actually I felt that was uh, a more effective way of putting it, which is not to not to reduce some of the impacts that bad behaviour has had on women, because frankly, when I look back sometimes, and actually I will say I had a personal experience actually, and the personal experience I had was looking after a particular client, it was a male client, and I was expected to entertain him on the times that he was in, in London. And, in, you know, from time to time it made me feel uncomfortable, you know, that this was me with an you know, older guy, I was supposed to take him out for dinner, entertain him and things like that. And from time to time, you know, there might be a hand on the knee, that kind of stuff. Now, today... I would have had no hesitation in saying, could you just get that off? And by the way, I'm going to tell both your boss and mine tomorrow. In those days, I guess it was more difficult to do that. Mm. But actually, that reflected society more broadly. It was sort of just something that happened. So I guess that, you know, what I did notice, even though I don't feel as though I've been held back by being a female in my career, but obviously, you know, the amount of executive boards, executive committees and so on that I've been on over the years where I have been the only woman amongst, you know, a whole table full of guys. I've sat on boards, I've been in board meetings for two days where the only other women I'd see would be the ones who were bringing in the teas and coffees and lunches and things like that. Now, it is true you can find yourself in like a slightly lonely voice, a lone voice when it came to things like, things like how we're going to treat people, the importance of staff engagement, the importance of balance teams, all those sort of stuff. But if you said things clearly and with data and also with a sense of humour, I found that you could really make, make progress. Anyway, I guess the other thing, you know, that was very, very different then versus now is that when I had my first baby... 
in the late 1980s. I mean, in those days, you sort of had to pretend that it wasn't making any difference. I mean, I was the first one of any seniority to come back to work and work full-time. And I sort of had to you know, pretend, oh, yeah, I had a baby 10 weeks ago. Didn't I mention it? Yeah, yeah. You know, just, you know, you had to sort of pretend, even though, I'll be completely honest, your boobs were hurting, you know, yeah. from feeding and... You'd been up all night. Uh, this hugest thing ever in your life has just happened and you just pretend days. it was just almost like a shopping trip. And you wouldn't have pictures of your children you know in your office because people might think your mind was a lot on the job however all I'd say at the time is that it just felt that I needed to make it clear that I was there to do a job to work hard and progress and I expected that to happen and I didn't want anyone to be either trying to make inverted commas allowances for me or indeed patronizing me in any way shape or form obviously things are so different now I mean you know no one would, would turn the clock back, for goodness sake. I mean, I think it's great now we can be normal human beings about having babies, coming mm-hmm. back, being flexible about working. But how much better, both for men and for women, that we're able just to talk like normal human beings with proper emotions about we love our children, we want to be with them. It's not to say that work isn't vitally, centrally important to our lives. Because work-life balance, that makes it feel like somehow work is something to be tolerated in order to live your life. Whereas I think the most important thing in some ways for work is you need to find the cause in what you do, whatever you do. At whatever level, you've got to find an importance in what you do. Because work is an important part of life. There is a need to think about your work in a broader life context. And nowadays it is possible, and not just for women, but also for guys, because so many guys actually want the workplace to be a human, flexible place to be. So you had two children working in this sort of magical time of creativity. Tell me about the projects that you worked on or the clients that you worked on. The thing that, I guess, really made me feel that I could make a difference was I worked on British Airways in its heyday. I mean, it's still a very good brand, a good airline, but I worked on British Airways at the time that it was becoming a true global leader. It was the world's favourite airline. And the kind of marketing, communication, advertising that it did was truly bold, truly world-class. And I remember you know, writing the creative brief for an ad that you might have seen, which was uh, lots of people coming together across the desert to form a face. And it was all about bringing the world together. One of my most favourite adverts. Well, I'm so glad. And, of course, it had the Malcolm McLaren operatic soundtrack in the background. And it was showing the world coming together. It was showing, you know, and it was highly symbolic of the time. Walls coming down between the East and the West and the world connecting, collaborating much better. So it was a moment in time. It was a rich and important moment in time. It was a creative execution, as I say, that was never showed any planes. It just showed the benefits and the impact, if you like, of people coming together and travelling around the world. And it really did set British Airways up as being the most interesting and imaginative quality airline, premium airline in the world. And I was so proud that I had a lot to do with it. I wrote the creative brief mm. that then went in to God. get the execution. So those moments are important moments. But I have to say, the most important moments always for me have been where I've recruited people I've recruited people because I felt that they had something interesting and special. And you train them, you develop them, you love them in, you know, in those pure and symbolic ways, and you see them be brilliant. And that, I think, was the thing. I mean, in some weird way, 
as a teenager, I used to do a lot of dancing, dancing and teaching yeah, dancing ballet. and choreographing. I did ballet. And actually, funnily enough, I've gone back to dance now at this stage in life, which has been very energising. But I remember teaching dancing and thinking, I love it when people can achieve more and do more and feel better about themselves as a result of you helping them. And taking that excitement, taking that sense of possibility into the working world, I have to say, I have absolutely loved it. And I think if there's one thing that I've loved about experiencing my working life is the people that I've worked with, the people I've recruited, and then gone on to do amazing things. And I think that responsibility to make others feel good about themselves and be as brilliant as they can be, that's the stuff of life in my view. And I feel sorry for people who feel that they can only succeed if they make other people feel smaller and reduce them. I've committed till I'm 90 that my main job in life is to help people realise their dreams, help them set up their own dreams, their own small businesses that make them happy. And for me, that's Till the day I die, that's what I'll be doing. And I found the most inner peace, the most inner joy, because helping others is is just for me, it's what it's about. It's the air that I breathe. But I'm I'm interested because I spoke to Dave Buonaguidi on this podcast, who founded the advertising company St. Luke's and Karmarama, and he had quite a bleak view, um, I put that lightly, on the current state of advertising. And he spoke a lot about how the advertising world had lost its true creativity and had moved away from what he felt was the true reason for advertising, from actually um, selling products to more maybe that can be seen as ego projects. Um, from your viewpoint, how would you say advertising and marketing has changed? And what's been that shift for you? Hmm. Well, it's interesting. I don't feel quite as miserable about the Dave world. was pretty miserable about the whole yeah. thing, but that's a, he, he wouldn't mind me saying that. No, I don't feel miserable about it, except, of course, the business model for advertising agencies has radically changed. And if you're not careful, that's a descending spiral because you know, the, the less margin you make, the less money you make, the less you can invest in talent... And also, if you work that talent so hard that you know they run out of energy and, and run out of love, then you don't have a great business. So I think the business model is different, not as free, easy, drinky, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, fun and games. I think what's really interesting and different now, and actually this connects with the reason I wanted to go into brand consultancy from the advertising agency business, is because I think that the way we connect our brands with people, the way brands need to connect with people, is much broader, more holistic, that H word, but nevertheless it's difficult to find another word for that making sure that you are wrapping your whole brand experience around your customer. And that's not just communication, that is everything you do. And I think that is a truly exciting and creative place to be and to think from. I.e., you are a brand, you've got a strong point of view about what it is that you stand for, you've done your research, you've done your insights, you understand what it is that people need and what they might be feeling, and then you think creatively about how you get what your brand 
brand stands for to your customers in the most engaging way. And that can be an in-store experience. It can be an online conversation. It can be someone influencing the way that you feel. You can be stunts. If you think about some of the extraordinary social media stunts, so Red Bull and so on. Mm. And also, if you think about Apple, I mean, I know Apple is the most overused case study in the universe, but for goodness sake, you know, this is the most extraordinary brand experience to the nth degree. Yes, the advertising and communication, but the whole experience of being in an Apple store, you know, the products and services, the people that you relate to and see, the genius bars and so on. I think there is enormous creativity in thinking more broadly in brand terms, in brand experience terms, a much deeper opportunity for creativity, but it does require a different model and a different way of thinking. Well, I wanted to talk to you more about this because you then moved on to work for Interbrands. You joined them in 1997. Can you tell me what you did there and what the business world was like at that time? Hmm. Well, it was very interesting for me to go into the brand consultancy business. I mean, I had been a strategy director and I went into Interbrand as a chief executive. Now, that in itself was quite an interesting and rude awakening for me. I tell you, being a strategy person, you can go, mm, in the long term, you know, we need to invest in that, and that's very important, things like that. And of course, when you're chief executive, you look down at the numbers and you go, oh my God, forget about the long term. <laughs> what about these? What about these numbers? Yes, what about the ratios? Yes, you know, what about your what about your shareholders? I mean, all these things, of course, you have to, you know, it's a relentless job being CEO. And I have to say, you know, I want more and more women to be chief executives, chairman and so on, we need a hell of a lot more women, like a hell of a lot more women running organisations. If you believe certain things and you're chief executive, you can make those things happen. You're not influencing, you're not just having to work through other people, persuade them. You can take some of those decisions and that is very, very powerful. So if you believe you need a 50-50 executive team, you you can get a 50-50 executive team as opposed to persuading somebody else this is a good idea. So that is a really, really good and important thing. I think the other thing is I was then able to take up non-executive directorship, sit on the board of other businesses. So more things became possible. I thoroughly recommend if you can become a CEO, you should definitely do that. Now, as far as the new business was concerned, Interbrand was, you know, the most high profile of any brand consultancy. And it started out as a naming consultancy. And in many ways, that's what people used to think Brand was. Branding was. You know, thank God things have moved on from there. But that's how Interbrand started. And it came up with names like Hobnobs and Zeneca and, you know, and various sort of models of Ford. And it came up with some really interesting names over time. But what was interesting about Interbrand is that they knew there was a need to put a hard financial value on these supposedly sort of soft and fuzzy things called brands, which, of course, had a customer franchise, customer relationships that gave you a longer-term, more secure future. If you've got, you know, if you've got a strong brand, you've got stronger relationships, that means more reliable earnings and so on. And, by the way, more reliable source of employment. There's a very, very strong... Uh, sort of sustainable value to brands and what interbrand did was go right we're going to look at these intangible assets a bit in the way that people would look at other sorts of assets in mm-hmm. the business and that you know that uh, concept of brand valuation was a fundamentally important practice and i could see the potential of that 
Uh, and frankly, you know, going to many different companies over the years, many different boards and so on, that in itself helped get brand on the boardroom agenda because suddenly this wasn't just something for the marketing the marketing team. This is something that the whole organisation needed to invest in because these were proper corporate assets. And putting a hard financial value on that was a huge breakthrough. Each week on Conversations of Inspiration, we're running a competition with our partner, NatWest, where if you are a small business or independent, you are in with a chance to win this very ad break coming up. A free advert to showcase your business to hundreds of thousands of listeners, thanks to NatWest's generosity. This week's winner on our ad break is Play Hooray. Over to you. Fancy a cup of tea? <laughs> yeah, me too. If you're at home with young children, you'll know that we're all just trying to make it through to nap time or at least get five minutes to yourself with a sit down and a cup of tea. Well, hopefully that's where I can help. Hi, I'm Claire and I am the founder of Play Hooray. It's an online community to support and coach parents to entertain little ones at home through realistic play activities. It all started when I had my baby four years ago and I soon found the days at home could be really lovely but they were also long and often quite lonely and it was play that saved me. Not only was it stimulating my baby and supporting his development, it was also bringing purpose and routine to my day. I was previously an early year specialist and it reignited my passion for play and young child development. So now I dedicate my time supporting others and making parents aware that you just don't need a house full of expensive toys to keep little ones busy. I would like to invite you to join Play Hooray and our online community where you will find inspiration, videos, podcasts, my free app and I have also designed and written play prompts which are activity cards to offer a helping hand on those days when you need it most. So come and join play.hooray on Instagram and Facebook and you might just get that cup of tea. Happy playing. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreaks at holly.co. We're looking for the wonderful stories that only small businesses can tell and have created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. What have you got to lose? Get recording. I can't wait to have a listen. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. really championed the business philosophy that brand is central and the company's most valuable asset. What led you to forming this philosophy? Number one, I mean, it has the advantage of being true. I mean, you know, you yes, go... but so, at the time it wasn't. Well, it wasn't. And also when people talked about assets, either they were talking about physical assets like yes. property and factories and, and things like that. But also if you pushed them, they'd say, oh yeah, well, of course our people are our most important asset. But organised to do what? Because unless you're rallying them round a strong consistent idea that's going to have some kind of sustainable future value. You're just a group of people doing stuff 
versus another group of people doing stuff. And the other thing about people is they have a nasty habit of dying, you know, or leaving, or taking their customers elsewhere. So buildings fall down, products and services become obsolete if you're not careful. The thing that lives on, if you look after them properly, are the brands or the brand. Beyond the founder, beyond the immediate owners, you know, whether you're, if you're a small business, you want something to pass on to your family, your colleagues or whatever, you need to think about yourself as a brand. If you want to add value to day-to-day -day process in any business, in any category of any size, you need to think about yourself as a brand. It's, it's so interesting hearing you talk about brand because I, I look back at my career and at different points in time, fighting boards or senior management teams, about this element that the brand was sacred. I used to call it the life force. Um, and when people were desperately trying to make me what I call excelable, you know, just put it into an Excel, how do you translate this into something that I can copy or I can run as an operation? And I'd, and I'd say, I can't, it's a life force. And, and it used to drive them crazy. And it was interesting because on this Conversations of Inspiration, I spoke to Julie Dean, who called them the chiefs. And and they would look at her, you know, as if she was completely alien. And it's when you bring in new people into organisations and you start to talk to them about a life force, it's a very difficult thing. Did you have that same experience in trying to help people understand what brand was? Were you sort of banging your head against a brick wall at certain points? I think one of the many interesting things about the whole topic of brand is obviously it's a living thing. I mean, it is a, a living asset because clearly you need people to think the brand is good for them, part of their future. It's really going to be a successful beacon for the organisation and they need to believe in it. And of course, particularly in a digital world, you know, everything is visible so everything counts. And I'm often asked to speak about branding in the digital age. And I know that people are expecting me to show sexy YouTube videos and social media stunts and, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm happy to do that. But honestly, what I often say is the killer insight about branding in the digital age is got to have a bloody good business in the first place where people care about what they do, they care about the success of the business, they care about the success of each, of each other, and also customers who love you and are prepared to tell other people that, you know, that they love you and so therefore be your advocates. And, you know, it's no good spending millions on marketing and communication if basically you don't get that right in the first place. Save your money, because you'll just actually get the bad smell spreading even faster. So you've got to make sure that in your business you're doing the right thing for your people, you're creating the right products and services, you're doing it in a way that's responsible and so on, in a way that your people care and then will share, and also, of course, your customers will love too. And then you can use marketing investment to amplify that thought. But you've got to get the basics right, first of all. Now, that is something that makes big, fat, lazy businesses very nervous and small, entrepreneurial, loved businesses potentially very excited. You ask me what makes me depressed. I have to say sometimes sitting with businesses where they are unwilling to embrace this sense of our people need to really be into what we're doing and care about what we're doing and to invest enough time and energy in making sure that that happens so they don't turn into saboteurs. They absolutely end up being champions 
and advocates and lovers of the business. And, you know, I'll use that word. There are mm. some businesses that are loved by their employees and they will go the extra mile and more in order to make the business succeed. You've been described as the queen of branding. You've also been described as the brand guru by the Financial Times and the brand leading the brand by the Telegraph. You've had a 40-year career in marketing, building brands. I'd love to pass on a few key pieces of advice, maybe to the small business community that are listening, about what they need to think about when thinking about brand. I've touched on a little point there about make sure you have a phenomenal business before you start worrying about marketing it. But what is a strong brand, a brand that will last a lifetime? So it's interesting you say have a strong business before you think about marketing. The only thing I'd say there is that I've worked with many different small businesses, startup businesses, growth stage businesses, and so on. And what I find very interesting there is sometimes the founders really get the brand thing, like you get the brand thing, even if it's instinctive. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the founder has a strong point of view about what the business needs to stand for and is flexible about what product might support that. And the reason I say that, and I, there was someone I used to work with, funnily enough, in, in our brand consultancy, he started a new business himself. And, you know, after about six months, he said, you know, I used to get a bit cynical sometimes about advice we would give to clients, but now I absolutely believe it because I have lived through it. He said he started a business with a strong idea, which was around helping people in smaller flats and houses, to think about their outside space, plants and gardens and things like that. They didn't really have time, time to do it. And what he discovered, actually, was that the products that people wanted and the services that people wanted, that changed. In the course of the first six months, it changed. And actually, what it taught him to think was that there was a real need for the service that he was providing, but... The actual products that people wanted to support that were different, and he was flexible about the products, but not flexible about the brand and what the brand could really deliver for people. And I thought that was interesting because the most successful entrepreneurs I've come across have been those that have stitched the brand thinking in from the outset. How can I make that show up through the people I'm recruiting, how I answer the phone, whatever it is that you're going to do and whatever, you know, the actual sort of hard product that you're going to have supporting the early stages of your brand, you are stitching in what your brand stands for through all of those things because that's going to be the thing that really allows you to grow and flex and develop over time. And I think there are three characteristics to any successful brand, whether big, small, medium, whatever stage. The first and foremost of these is clarity of what you stand for. Not necessarily the product, because as we know, products become obsolete. But what is your brand going to stand for? Now, that's easy to say, difficult to do, as you know, because clarity and simplicity is often extremely difficult to wrestle down. Secondly is coherence, about how that clarity shows up through everything you do. It's fundamentally important, the people, the experience the places that you're going to distribute. You know, for example, Jack Wills was interesting, wasn't it? It chose particular places to put its stores in a way that really reflected what its brand stood for and its customers and so on. So, uh, So people, places, pricing, positioning, the whole experience inside and out. You've got to make sure all of those are coherent. And then, of course, the third characteristic is leadership. 
Now, that's, of course, people like you who run the business. How do you symbolize all the very best about your brand and what it stands for? You know, you are supposedly living those values, symbolizing those values, and that's not an easy thing to do either with authenticity. But leadership is also about restlessness. It's about innovation. It's about setting the agenda and making sure that you are prepared to flex your hard offer over time in line with what your customers need. So those three characteristics, I think, easy to say, difficult to do, but fundamentally important. God, that would be so useful for so many people listening. Thank you. My experience, as I mentioned before, is that brand is this magical sort of intangible thing. And it's the key for successful business and certainly was key when we were building Not in the High Street. The internet was very still new. It was 2006. They were parting with their credit card details on a computer. And so it played such a fundamental role in giving people that trust in an organization and certainly I'm obsessive about brand and what I've brought to Holly and Co I find it quite difficult to relinquish control of it <laughs> to put it lightly and you know handing it over to others and and I'm sure many businesses I speak to find that sort of working with an agency or working with designers or people What would you say about how to successfully scale a brand without watering it down or bringing other people to work on a brand? It's a really, really interesting one, this, because I work with many businesses which have been at the stage of moving from the entrepreneurial founder to the next generation of management. And that is such an interesting but very, very hard thing. All I would say is that there are certain businesses can cease to see what's happening outside, whether that's trends in the workplace, social trends that really ought to apply to you, or indeed actually trends to do with how people shop and things like that. When you become so passionate and so involved in the business that you cease to look outside, you cease to be nosy. You cease to be nosy enough at what's going outside. That is not healthy. And so I think in some ways, sometimes people from the outside can see exactly what the problem is. And when you're on the inside, sometimes it's very, very hard. And that sometimes means that the next generation of management are the ones that can really take a brand on and scale up because they won't have the sacred baby problem anymore. They'll feel more dispassionate about the business. Now, the trick is always to keep up the energy, to keep up the personal involvement that you know that your staff have got, and also to codify what is good about that brand, what is great about the business and the culture, and make sure that that is codified in in a way that is going to inspire new and more generations of staff. So I have to say that I think that and I love working with entrepreneurial business, but there is a moment where everyone around you can know that it's time for you to move on and stop before you yourself do. I'm interested to ask you, you mentioned about this digital age, but do you have a point of view in terms of what social media is doing, algorithms, the future of brand and how it sits within what is a changing world? The fundamental characteristics of strong brands still apply to large brands, small brands, startup brands, and so on, and they still apply also in the digital age. What's really interesting, of course, is the scale and speed at which things both happen 
and can happen. And I think on that, just as a funny, silly example, I remember being on a British Airways flight. You might not remember it. There was a flight, there was a, a front page on the newspaper the next day that said... British Airways flight turns around because of smelly poo. Do you, do you remember this no, one? No, I, I, I didn't remember no, that. There is no reason why you should remember, but I remember being... I remember it because I was on that plane. You know, it had only just taken off, and there was a rather strange smell. I mean, this is a very unpleasant story, but it just gives you the whole <laughs> digital age thing, OK? So, the fasten seatbelt lights are still on, OK? And I say that because nobody was able to go to the loo. So anyway, pilot turns around, we have to have to go back, you know, everyone groans and things like that. Anyway, we everyone's getting off the flight and a local councillor tweets that the British Airways flight had to turn around because, you know, of the of a smelly poo. Anyway, that gets picked up by the mainstream media the next day before any of the poor British Airways communication department is able to, you know, think through what they might say and things like that. And I just thought, you know, this is an example. Obviously, it was a fun, it was sort of a funny thing. On the other hand, you know, you just think it is possible for lies like this or exaggerations to get all the way or halfway around the world while the truth is getting its pants on. I'm sure you've heard that phrase as well. Now, there are some more professional stories. It's a bit like when it came to a bank, you know, that invited questions about, you know, from graduates about what they wanted to know from JP Morgan. They got a torrent of, you know, I think one of my favourite ones was uh, you're, you're locked in a room, there's no key, there's a light bulb, there's a piece of string and everything else. Now, how do you defraud investors? You know, So you can ask for it on social media. And if your business has got a problem, BT, for example, is always trying to do emotive things on social media, You know, talk about interesting events and things like that. They keep on getting torrents of complaints back because there are fundamental things about that business and customer service that you know, broader customers and broader stakeholders have got a big problem with. And until you've got that stuff sorted out, don't bother to emote and to have fun and things like that. So I think that's a really big symbol for this digital age. You've got to have things right and you've got to be able to have people on your side, your staff, your customers and so on, and then you can amplify and magnify. And that, I do think, is a big opportunity for small businesses because if you have got something that people love, it doesn't cost that much to get people to talk about you and to say nice things about you. Now, clearly... It's a very, very competitive world out there and it is becoming more and more difficult to get your voice heard, your natural voice heard in natural search because, you know, there's an awful lot of paid, there's a lot of paid social media and also, of course, a lot of paid influencers that might crowd out the kind of natural and authentic message that you've got. However, that is the place to start. And often the place to start, by the way, is to find someone who has a lot of social media followers who actually happens to love your product. I think you've spoken to the lady from the Cambridge Satchel Company. You know, it's a fabulous product. Alexa Chung and some star leaders use it. Before you know it, you've got something oh, then to publicise. That's what she said. And it was authentic. It wasn't paid for. It was real. And people are smart and people can spot it a mile away when you try and fake it in this day and age, which I would say is just full of what is real and what isn't. And I, and I do think that the real stuff, if you can get it through, customers know that it's the real deal. Absolutely. And of course, you know, the changing regulatory environment where 
influencers have to say whether or not they are paid to do something. I mean, there are controls on this. But still, I think that the authentic will come shining through. So find people who love you. That will magnify your business in a way that you know you might not be able to afford or you certainly couldn't afford to do if you were buying those kinds of impacts. And then you've got to activate that kind of event, that kind of stunt. And if you've got the money then to put into paid social media or at least digital marketing, then of course you can keep up that momentum. But in the early days, find fans. Queen of branding. So do you have favourite brands or at the moment that you think is best in show or is doing a good job? Oh, well, I have several favourite brands. I mean, it's very difficult not to admire Apple. And I know, you know you can people can groan at that. Oh, you know, sort of so many people love it. But the reason is it has just done the most phenomenal I job. I mean, this thing here, this iPhone that everybody copies, just the vision behind that, the fact that, Human beings find it easy to use these things. And before Apple was there, they were cold, grey, boring boxes. And Apple became something that you wanted to use, that you loved using, and so on. And, of course, you know, their products and services have changed enormously. They've been brand-based in their innovation. So this is what the brand stands for, humanising technology, doing it in a way that's truly very different. And they've used that for so many other categories. They blurred categories. While Nokia were there making handsets, Apple were in there knocking their lights out because, of course, they had no respect for category boundaries. They had customers that loved them who were encouraging them to go into other sectors. So it's very, very difficult not to love that brand. Um, Obviously, I love ASOS. You know, I love Net-A-Porter. The reason why I love those, love those brands is not only because they help me in my life because I don't have a lot of time, but also because they speak to me and they have conversations in a way that actually I find interesting and helpful to my life. Now, that, I think, is also something that smaller businesses, high street-based businesses, can take the conversations that they might have you know, within the stores, within physical environments, and take those conversations onto a digital platform and amplify that through a digital platform in a way that creates bigger, broader fan bases. You touched on the high street there. Retail's obviously going through a very difficult time at the moment, and we're seeing, you know, more businesses on the high street having to close their doors than ever. We're obviously going through a real transition stage, seeing in the press all the time that the internet's to blame for the high streets, you know, downfall. I'd love to hear your viewpoint on this sort of fight that's happening and how we're not really seeing necessarily any high street winners at the moment. You sit on many boards. Do you see this as a, a current problem? Have you been dealing with this for a long time? And what has been your advice about these two worlds colliding? Well, I think what's interesting about the two worlds colliding is that they shouldn't really collide. They should collaborate and connect and that, I think, is the real key here. I mean, I was involved with Dixon's. I was on the board of Dixon's Retail, obviously the owner of Curry's, PC World, and several chains across Europe. And I joined the board, and it was a, a very large, successful company. And then, of course, it was impacted by you know, consumer downturns, 
the rise of Amazon. And what was interesting there is that the shops acted like traditional shops, pile stuff high and hope people come in and try and sell those products. And it was very much an emphasis on product and price, product and price and so on. With a new generation of management and also broader-minded innovation, what was interesting there is the transformation from just traditional shops flogging stuff to places actually where people could go and take their laptops to be transferred or repaired or to get advice on stuff. And also for services to come to your home, to connect stuff up and whatever. And that combination of both shop and service business was truly interesting. And now, of course, with new generations of stores, there are lots of possibilities of demonstrating products, of hangout spaces, coffee places. And the manufacturer brands want to show their products there because they can show what it can do. Because in cyberspace, no one can hear you scream, you know? So you can try and demonstrate to your heart's content. You can show how fabric sort of, you know, flows and things like that. But for many people, they like to see it or feel it or experience it. And I think the minute shops start thinking about themselves as physical shops, by the way, start thinking about themselves as being places of experience. I know that's sort of overdone, or rather, we've all heard it. What does it really mean? Well, it means thinking open-mindedly about how you're going to use the space to envelop people in your brand. And yes, you want to sell them something too. But places for people to come. You know, places for people to come, to chat, to see new things. I mean, it's interesting that HMV, the music industry... The possibilities of new bands, of new music, of experiences, people being together, listen, listening to new stuff. I mean, that would be a truly interesting way, in my view, of using space on a high street or otherwise out of town and so on. You have to stop thinking about yourself as a place to flog CDs or DVDs or anything like that. That's why Blockbuster went down the lavatory. You know, you've, you've got to think about yourself as a brand that is promising something to somebody, you have got to keep on innovating what the product is. Now, had you thought about music, we are purveyors of interesting music sung by interesting ranges of people and start thinking about your bands as brands as opposed to just bits of music. That would have created, in my view, some interesting ideas for experience to use the space to engage your customers and to genuinely give them something that was exciting. And yes, of course, then, to buy, to sample digital downloads, stream music, whatever they were going to do, go to concerts, buy tickets. These seem to be exciting things. And this is also why the digital and the physical, this is not an either or, either or it is an and, and you've got to make sure these things work together. What are you offering physically that can actually then be taken on, developed from a digital point of view, how can you learn things in the digital world to bring that into your physical environment? How do they flow easily together? That's, I think, both the challenge and the opportunity for high street businesses and small businesses, because I know that investment isn't, isn't infinite. You look at your mind there and just how it worked and you think about how many brands and big businesses that are struggling to maintain that high street presence, but they just can't seem to make it work. They just can't seem to, as you said, bring this, the brand experience to life 
Is this something that, you know, let's go back to the younger Rita when you were seven wearing your overall. overall, And you now talk about retail now. Is this something that you want to try and help? I love the retail business. From time to time, it can be frustrating because so often in the past, people have equated retail with shops, physical shops. And that shop mentality has become the organising idea for these businesses. It's also got in the way. By, I remember in the days where the internet-based business had a separate P&L versus the physical shops. Now, that is exactly how not to make the very most of all the assets that you've got. But human beings like to connect with other human beings. They like to do that in virtual base. They like to do it physically. The real trick is to think about what is it that you want your brand to stand for that's going to be exciting and interesting for your customer and then think about all the spaces and all the assets that you've got that can make that real and make it happen. And so therefore, I would love to go back to that business. I mean, God, what fun you could have with a children's toy shop. And particularly now, of course, when we think about, you know, what's happened with the demise of Toys R Us and things like that. And not so much think about it as a toy shop. It's actually a place for children to come and play. There are so many possibilities. You need to come back to the brand and be open-minded about how that should come to come to life. And do you know, what's stuck in my mind is a ridiculous example whereby I remember being at a, you know, the World Retail Congress once, and they were giving out awards and prizes for interesting businesses. There was an award for the most innovative retailer. And this is going back at least 10 years. And Apple was awarded the most innovative retailer of the year. And I can't tell you how much moaning and groaning and griping there was amongst traditional retailers that Apple had got that because they said it wasn't a proper retailer. Now, that, I think, is just such an interesting story and illustration of how thinking was so slow to happen. And before we come to the end, you you talked about the three things that interested you and have followed your career, and you touched on sustainability. So here's my sort of my confession, which is I have had a crush on Sir David Attenborough since I was about seven. And David Attenborough was the reason why I got interested and involved in the environment in the first place. He used to walk around in his khaki shorts and go to the rainforest of the world and things like that. And I used to watch these beautiful trees being cut down by these enormous chainsaws. And of course, as a seven-year-old, the first thing you think is, how could people possibly do that to something so beautiful? And secondly, where are all the animals who live there going to go? And it was a very traumatic thing for me, but on the other hand, it was a really important drive for me because from that moment onwards, I cared passionately about the environment. I was a member of, you know, the many, uh, several environmental organisations. And yet when I went into business at first... The environment wasn't something that you could really talk much about overtly because people thought it was the enemy of selling consumer product. And then, ironically, it was Margaret Thatcher who made a speech to the Royal Society back in 1988 who said that business ought to be concerned with the environment. And suddenly, mainstream businesses were interested in that subject and I knew about it. What has been fantastic and cheering over the past 25 years is that actually these two things have come together much more. Now, truly, if we don't get the environmental issues sorted out, there won't be any other issues left to worry about, high street sales or not. 
what that means is that we've got to integrate sustainability in our thinking, managing plastics, carbon, extreme weather. And frankly, the last thing to say is that, you know, businesses are run by human beings. Human beings need to behave like human beings when they're in business. It's no use going, I'm a nice person when I'm at home with my family, but when I come into the office, I chew concrete blocks and I only care about money. This is no longer acceptable, and frankly, this will no longer play out well, particularly with a younger generation of people who are having to deal with a whole lot of impacts from a wasteful society of people who haven't, an older generation who might have seen some of the issues, but they haven't really gripped them, haven't taken them seriously. So there's also a big opportunity in my view. So let's just yeah. do it, shall we? Yeah, Bring could... out, come out as the human beings we are, I hope in a good way. Oh. <laughs> I use the analogy that running your own business, your career is like a sort of epic roller coaster. Can I ask you what you would think has been one of your lows? Oh, low moments, I think. When I was chief executive and the market, the brand consulting market collapsed in the aftermath of the dot-bomb era. Uh, this was around the year 2000, 2001 and so on. And then the tragedy of 9-11, which of course puts many other things into context. But as a result of that, terrible year both from a human and also from a financial point of view I had to make a lot of people redundant and that was a big low point I remember walking around the office and there was Nelly Furtado I'm like a bird Do you remember that track I from do. years ago I remember that playing uh, in the office when I walked around and just thinking I'm going to have to make a lot of these people redundant that was a truly painful moment, particularly when you've recruited people, you've trained them, you've cared for them and so on, and you now have to make them, make them redundant. So that was a big low point. We had to do it for the sake of the business and its survival for, you know, for the majority of people, but it was horribly sad. And I found being the combination of trying to be a healer and an executioner really very difficult from a personal perspective. So that was a real low point. And a meeting with Philip Green, actually. I think that was probably a bit of a low point as well. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> and, and, and a high? And a high on this roller coaster? Oh, I think uh, two highs, really. Number one is where you feel as though you've produced, been part of producing some work that is genuinely transformational. And it isn't just one high moment. There are many high moments, and that's why I keep on doing what I do. I like doing public speaking for the same reason, is that sometimes when you can see a moment where at least some people in the audience will feel that they can do things better or to you know, open minds and have a sense of possibility, that's a big high. And the third and biggest high, obviously apart from my children and how wonderful they are, but the third big high is to see people to succeed, see people that you've helped, that you've recruited, you've trained, to see them succeed. That, in my view, is the biggest and highest of highs. And could I ask someone that has inspired you that maybe I could interview on Conversations of Inspiration? Uh, my uh, boss at Saatchi and Saatchi, who encouraged me to take up the role of strategy director. She's now retired, but she's an extraordinary, an extraordinary woman. Marilyn Baxter, she was very, very inspiring for me. I think the people that I think would be fascinating for you to interview would be Angela Ahrens, who obviously has recently 
said that she's leaving Apple. I was hoping she was going to be chief executive of Apple, but anyway, there we are. The reason I say that is that she is amazing, I think, at working with people, at making them feel good about themselves, at getting the best out of people, inspiring creativity, creating the right environment for that kind of extraordinary stuff to happen. I think she is a really extraordinary and influential and inspirational woman. Marjorie Scardino, you know, is also incredibly visionary. And one of the things I remember being inspired by her about when she was chief executive of Pearson was that after 9-11, she wrote a, an email to all of the staff at Pearson just saying that, you know, if you don't want to travel, if you don't feel confident to travel, if it makes you nervous, you don't have to do it. Nothing is that important. Yeah. And, you know, I think that um, that kind of humanity is something that we all need mm. in business. We have these shields sometimes. We need to let those down because we've talked a bit about purpose and things like that. I think at certain stages of your life, you get clearer and clearer about what your purpose is. And I think that certainly from my perspective, my purpose the rest of you know my working life and maybe my life, whichever is the shorter, let's sort of, let's see, but is... Number one, I really want business to be more human. I want to help make business more human in every way. But as part of making business more human, we must have many, many, many more women running organisations. Not just being senior, but running them. Being chief executive, chairman, founders, entrepreneurs, mixing it with other people who are doing the same role. We must have that. And that, in my view, humanity and business might also give us some hope for the planet too. Otherwise, do you know, the planet is just going to kill us off, chew us up, regenerate. It's not about us saving the planet. I think it's about saving the planet to save ourselves. So um, mm. let's all roll our sleeves up and get on with it. Gosh, thank you so much, Rita, for your time today. I just can't thank you enough for being so clear and honest and open with sharing what your journey has been and how you've viewed brand because I think it's something that will be such a pivotal point in so many organizations if we can get people to build brands that can change the world and I think that that's the future that we're looking at purpose-driven brands and I think along with the things that you are talking about women in business our environment I think that it really could save the day so I thank you so so much queen of brands for all of your time and at this point in the time I ask my lovely guests that they have prepared a letter to their younger self so it, I don't know what you're going to say but I I hand it over to you and thank you sincerely for your time well all I can say Holly is it has been a genuine pleasure so thank you for having me so you know rather than write a physical letter I thought I might have a slightly more modern take on this and do a sort of chatty, short podcast to my 24-year-old self. So let's see how, let, let's see how that Can't works. Wait. Okay, here we go. So, hello you. You might well be feeling a bit conflicted right now with no idea of where your life is going to go. I know you've had one or two difficult 
personal things to get to. I also know that from time to time you feel insecure or worried that you're not good enough or doing enough or working hard enough or achieving enough or you don't have enough financial security. I really understand all that. But all I'd say is you can use some of these feelings to develop a drive and a positive drive that will really help you to progress. And there are also a few things I'd love you to know. Now, I know that you've never been good at taking your own advice, but I'm just going to offer a little small gas board of things that I've noticed, and you can do a bit of pick and mix and decide for yourself. So firstly, work hard. I know that you're doing that already, and also just know that that is really going to get you a long way. So carry on doing that, even though I know that it can be knackering and tiring and everything else. Secondly, could you please make sure that you do it now? Stop prevaricating. I know that that has been a lifelong temptation, but get yourself on a course earlier than you actually did and make sure you're making those lists and doing stuff now. Worst first, because it never gets any better. Thirdly, I know how nosy you are about people. I know how nosy you are about how they work, what makes them tick, their emotions and so on. Keep up that nosiness because honestly, that will stand you in very good stead when you need to understand people more and more as you get older. And also, when you get even older, you've got to keep alive and you've got to keep alert to all the important trends that are going to be happening that you will have your mind blown by. The next thing is make sure you learn how to read a balance sheet. Now, I know you didn't go into accountancy straight from university. I know that you thought about that. But honestly, it will be a pain in the butt if you can't learn to read a balance sheet sooner rather than later. Now, you might learn that later in life, but it's like speaking a foreign language. You'll all speak with a dodgy accent and it'll never come quite naturally. So sooner rather than later, learn the language of finance because the language of the boardroom is the language of finance. And if you don't know how to do it, it'll take you longer to get there. Next thing is be nice. Now, I know how much you want to be nice to other people, and all I would say is keep it up because if you are not nice to people, you can bet your bottom dollar at some point or other they're going to turn up somewhere and affect you not well. They'll want to get their own back. So, for God's sake, carry on being nice. And also, it's a difficult old world out there. It's imperative for all of us to try and be nice to others, to make actually the world go round a bit more positively. You and I both care massively about the environment as an example. You care massively about making people feel good about themselves. Carry on doing that. That's not to be nicey-nice, but that is to be good to other people. And I'm going to poke around a bit in relationships because I know you've had you know, some challenges on some of those, but... Make sure you only ever have relationships with people who make you feel good about yourself. I know so many people who've had relationships with people who reduced them or tried to make them feel bad about themselves for whatever stuff was going on with them. It's really important that actually you surround yourself with people who want to support you and make you feel as though you can do anything. And that is fundamentally important for you and, of course, any children that you might have yourself in the future. Be yourself. In fact, be your best self because you'll never be as good at trying to be somebody else. And make sure you really 
carry that in your mind because, do you know, in the end, it'll all work out. You'll be okay. And I'm sending you huge love. Me. <laughs> kiss, kiss. Oh, Rita, you, um, it's, it's, I sit here as um, a 42-year-old woman who I don't have many women, actually, that I look up to. And I knew on that first meeting of you that you were special. You just have touched on so many things today that are so important to me. Brand, your philosophies, the way you are, your humour. Um, you're just pretty damn cool. <laughs> and um, I just, yeah, I just thank you for being you because you're now... 100% in my, you're there for me. And, um, and I, I really look forward to hopefully having a friendship post this podcast and just um, thank you for being a, a great role model for us. Thank oh, you. Thank you so much, Holly. I, my head is so big now. I don't think I'm going to be able to get it out of the door. So <laughs> good, anyway, good. I've loved it. Oh, Very good you. luck to you in thank your business. You. Lots of love and, Lots uh, of love to you. and, Let's Rita. see what we can do. Take care. Big kiss. Thank you. Thanks, NatWest, again for sponsoring this podcast. It's great to partner with an organisation that believes in empowering people in business. That's why they developed the NatWest Business Hub. It's full of information, tips and insights to help business owners meet their goals. Go to natwestbusinesshub.com to get started. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations of Inspiration. I want as many people as possible to believe that they can build a business doing what they love. So could I ask a favour? If you like what you're listening to, would you rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider? It will help others find this podcast and may just be the inspiration they need to follow their dreams. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. You will find that all the things that I have said will come to when you are lying in your bed. And if you want your friends to come,